That was a clip of an underground church in China that was receiving Bibles for the very first time in their lives. And you can kind of see the emotion, the excitement that they have as they're pulling them out of that suitcase and kissing them. This is the very first for them, and they, they recognize how significant it is. I mean, you saw the woman saying, like, this, this is what we needed the most. Right, they know how it's going to change their lives forever, the very first time that each of them are able to have their own Bible. It's an awesome, encouraging thing to watch. Well, Happy New Year. Okay, you're kind of awake. I know it's dark outside. I'll try again. Happy New Year. Okay. I hope you guys had a great New Year and an amazing, amazing Christmas. I know I did. Janie and I had the opportunity to go home and spend the uh, week after Christmas with my family in Colorado. And it was awesome, super relaxing time and a whole lot of fun, except for one particular moment on the trip that we had. And I was reminded of an old phrase this past week, you are what you eat. You know that one. You know that one. Well, I can tell you firsthand that it is true uh, you see, when I go home now, I, I just really want to make sure that we hit all of my old favorite things. So we see my old friends, we hang out with family for a little bit, do some of the things that I really enjoyed, uh, and I want to eat all of my favorite things that I can't have here. Which is crazy to think about that Joplin doesn't have some food things, but there are some things back home that we don't have here. So we did. We ate uh, Red Robin. We had this awesome Philly place that's local to Colorado Springs called Taste of Philly. It was great. We had this, uh, my old favorite pizza place. Janie didn't like it. It was her first time trying it. It was like super, super greasy pizza. You know what I'm talking about? Who likes greasy pizza? Yes, that's the only way to live. I feel bad for everybody else. And we had this tiny little hole-in-the-wall Mexican place called El Taco Rey. They have the best green chili ever. And that's objectively speaking, actually. They have awards all over their tiny little walls in there. Uh, and it was awesome. My mom made lasagna. It was, it was a great week. But I also decided that I wanted to take Janie to do the incline. So the incline, I think we have a picture of it. There it is. So the incline is uh, about 100 years ago, they made a railroad that took you about halfway up Pikes Peak, straight up, straight up the side of the mountain. And a little while later, they actually built another one right next to it that took you the entire way up the mountain. And so they left all the railroad ties of the old one there, and they essentially just formed stairs up the side of the mountain. So it's a local favorite. People do it all the time, actually, which is hard to believe. Even when there's snow on it, people are always out there doing it. Uh, and it, it's become a favorite for those who are gluttons for punishment, I guess. It was part of our off-season football workout routine. We would do it every single Friday. But it's an awesome exercise because it starts at about 7,500 feet in elevation, so close to a mile and a half above sea level. And then it ends at 9,500 feet in elevation, so almost two miles above sea level. But that happens, that 2,000-foot gain in elevation happens in a little less than three-quarters of a mile. So it's just, you know, stairs up the mountain, like a stairway to heaven or the other place, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. But I've done, this, I've done this before several times, coming from here and going there and doing the incline, and it's never fun. It's never been fun. I don't learn, but I do it anyway. But I can tell you, 
I can tell you that if you eat a cheesesteak and greasy pizza the day before getting up early in the morning to go do this, it does not make for a pleasurable experience, right? It doesn't, and that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. But you are, you are what you eat, right? History tells a story of a young man who lost his dad in his teenage years, and his mom couldn't afford school, so he sent out artwork year after year to the Vienna School of Art, hoping for a scholarship. And this was going to be his ticket out of poverty. So year after year, he sent in this artwork, and he got the same letter back every single time. Artwork unsatisfactory. Application denied. Four years in a row. So like a lot of teenagers would do, he would retreat into his own little world in his, in his bedroom, and he would listen to his favorite composer, a man by the name of Richard Wagner. Lyrics were highly hateful towards women, and they proposed violence against children. And he would listen to this music, and he would read writings from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. You've probably heard of him. He's the one who's famous for writing that God is dead, and that the only reason for existence is to obtain power. And that the ultimate use of that power is to use it on the weak and the feeble to exercise dominance over them. We know this young man today by the name of Adolf Hitler. You are what you eat. What we consume shapes us just like a steady diet of only donuts will shape you. (laughs) What we put in our minds shapes us. The most dangerous thing for us to do is to be blind to that, to assume that what we put in our mind has no effect on who we are or how we think. But just like filling our minds or our bodies with bad stuff can harm us, filling it with good makes us healthy. That's why in Ezekiel 3.3 it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. So he didn't literally eat paper. Blaine, stop looking at me like I'm crazy. He didn't, he didn't literally eat paper. Right? It's just that God has known for all time that you are what you eat. And if we fill our minds with what's in here, we'll be able to filter out all of the crap that society tries to pump us full of. Because here's the thing. There is a lot of stuff out there even coming from well-meaning Christian adults, that sounds really Christian at first listen, but it's not in here. It's not in here. And there's only one way to know that. The Bible is God's gift to us, and we all know that, or most of us will admit that, but I know at least I struggle with this, and I doubt that I'm alone, but I don't always treat it like a gift. Because when was the last time I got a gift from somebody and never opened it? We just had Christmas, and I promise you that I have already opened and subsequently used every single thing that I have been given. Nothing has gone untouched. I truly believe that the Bible is the inspired words of God, but it is a huge, it's a huge and really, really strange concept. And I remember when I was in high school, I had all kinds of questions Questions about this book, like where we got this book, where it came from, who wrote it, how can we know that this book is actually from God, what makes it different from any other book that claims to be written by God or a God, 
And nobody was really able to answer those questions for me, or maybe I wasn't asking them enough, or maybe I wasn't asking the right people, or maybe I just wasn't listening when they answered it, I don't know. But I wanted to know where this came from. Right, because we say that it wasn't written as a whole book. Somebody didn't just sit down and write this whole thing, because that would take forever. But it was several books by several different authors, right? We don't have some magical story of how it appeared to mankind like other religions do. We didn't say that it was written by God and then handed down to us. This book has a story that actually spans over 5,000 years of human history to get into our hands today. So if you'll humor me, I'd like to just pull on one small thread through that time span to see how awesome and honestly how bloody this story, this history behind us getting this book was. So 5,000 years ago, writing began in ancient Sumer, which is known as Iraq today, by communicating ideas through pictures called pictographs. Right, these early letters were made by taking a piece of wood and etching images into clay that was later taken out into the sun and dried. And this idea was improved upon by the Egyptians in their hieroglyphics. Right, it's their history in pictures. And we're very grateful for these because some of them even speak of the Exodus account exactly as we see it in the Bible. Right, their history confirms, their stories confirm, corroborate the same story that we've been celebrating all this time. And 4,000 years ago, they started developing an alphabet. And people started writing on animal skins that were treated with lime, and they used ink made from vegetables mixed with charcoal, and they would take reeds from rivers or from feathers. Now, if that sounds like a big pain, I'm sure it was, I've never tried it, but this is the lengths that people would go to to ensure that stuff could get handed down. And then people began to use a plant called papyrus, they would pull it up out of the ground and weave it together and then smash it down to get all the juice out of it, let it dry. This is the earliest form of paper that we have. And the oldest found Jewish writings that we have ever found were on papyrus. They're over 3,000 years old, called the Marzea Papyrus. That's the oldest f one we've found so far. It contains the first reference to the name Elohim, which is the name of God. That's the oldest one we've found so far, but fast forward to 350 years before Jesus comes on the scene, and Alexander the Great has taken over most of the known world. He's spreading Greek influence and mostly the Greek language and culture. And the Old Testament was written in Hebrew by Jews, but because of Alexander the Great and his influence, the entire Old Testament was translated into Greek. And the entire New Testament was written in Greek. It looks like this. They wrote backwards. And early Greek actually had no spaces between words and no punctuation whatsoever. So later, as priests would transcribe these letters from Greek to Greek as the Greek language evolved, they started adding vowel pointings and grammar marks and this wouldn't have been an easy science. Just think of words we have like it's and how different the meaning becomes whether or not you add an apostrophe to it or not. And then in the 1800s, just a couple hundred years ago, archaeologists all the way down in Africa, northern Africa, discovered the oldest fragment of the New Testament that we've ever found. The oldest fragment of the New Testament. It was a part of the book of John. 
So this thing spread super fast, and I'm really grateful it did, because it would have been written all the way more towards the top. I don't know if you can see where Israel is, but it would have been written way more towards the top, and these archaeologists found it all the way down in southern Egypt. So the oldest, the oldest fragment of the book of John we have is all the way down in southern Egypt. It would have been so far removed from the writing place because it would have been further removed from the intense persecution that was happening where these books were being constantly destroyed and their readers burned. Because that was the reality of the church for the first 300 years of its existence. And the Bible survived only because it spread and was passed along faster than people could die for it. And it was somewhere during this time, though, that the early church canonized the New Testament, as in they decided which books and letters were going to be viewed as actual words from God. Because just like today, a lot of people say a lot of things good and bad about Jesus, but anything I say about Jesus should not be viewed as the words of God, right? So the early church during this time, during this 300 years of intense persecution, they came up with criteria for which letters were going to be viewed as authoritative for the church. And they had a lot of criteria, the main one being first-hand eyewitness accounts. Now, all of the books we have in the New Testament were only written by people who had significant face time with Jesus. Except maybe Hebrews. We have no idea who wrote that, but it's just so good they included it anyway. But that's a different discussion for another day. But in 312, in the year 312, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, converted to Christianity. And then he told everybody else that they had to as well. It wasn't a really good idea. But in 331, he ordered a young scribe called Eusebius to create 50 copies of the Greek Bible. Still as separate scrolls, but 50 copies for public access and use for the first time. Two of them are actually still in existence today. From 331 to 2018, these books have been preserved. The first one is called the Codex Sinaiticus, and it's on display in the British Museum of Art. You could actually go and see it today if you wanted to. The second one that's still around is called the Codex Vaticanus, and it's in Italy, in the Vatican, and we're not allowed to go see that one today. In the Latin language eventually took over Rome not long after, so a scholar named Jerome translated the entire Bible from Greek into Latin. And his copy became the standard for about a thousand years until the first universities in Europe arrived and they made the Bible into one whole book similar to what we have today. In the 1100s, a bookshop in Paris began producing the Bible for the first time ever. But this would take one scholar 10 months to create one copy. And it took from 50 to 70 sheep giving their lives to have enough material to make the book. It was astronomically expensive. Very few could afford it. And by this time in the 1100s, even fewer could read Latin. So only the extremely wealthy and the extremely well-educated could afford it and could use it. Only they could have their own Bible. So almost no one had access to a Bible that they could read at this time. And this is when we start to see abuse in the church for the first time. 
priests would be able to, to make things up to take advantage of people because you had to go to a priest to learn about Jesus. It was the only way you could learn about Jesus. This is a dangerous system. Like, I love the way that Dan talks about Jesus, but if what Dan says or what I say or what any person says is the only thing that we're learning about Jesus, there could be a huge problem there. So because of this, because of this in the 1300s, a professor named John Wycliffe and his followers attempted the first English translations of the Bible. These followers were called lollards, which means mutterers, because they dared to read the Bible out loud in English instead of Latin, which is crazy to me because Latin isn't even the, the language the Bible was written in, but whatever. Wycliffe believed that the Bible itself had more authority than the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and anyone who believed that was killed. But after these versions began to hit the streets, it was too late. So if the church caught you with one, they would burn it, and they would burn you with it. But it was still wildly popular. People could have their own Bible for the very first time in human history. So, so many lollards were burned and buried just outside of London in a 140-year period of time, that if you travel to London today, there's a place you can visit called Lollard's Pit. You can go and see it today. Uh, in, in the back of that, apparently there's a pub there called Lollard's Pit Pub. They have daily trivia and drinking games. I don't know why you need to know that, but there you go. So then this German printer named Johann Gutenberg, keeps this revolution alive by developing the printing press. Now we can mass-produce the Bible fast enough to get it in the hands of more people who want it. And during this time, theologian Martin Luther came along, and he said people need the Bible. The Bible belongs in the hands of the people. And he started what is known as the Reformation of the Church before he was killed. Then William Tyndale started mass-producing English Bibles even faster because of a brand new invention called paper. So now Bibles could be cheap and fast to print. And there's still a printing company called Tyndale. They still produce Bibles even to this day. Tyndale was killed like many others at this time who valued having a Bible, and I could keep going, but here's the point. Thousands of people over thousands of years have sacrificed their lives because they believed it was so important for you and for me to have this book. And it's not just a then thing. Today, right now, there are missionaries who smuggle Bibles into Muslim countries. And one of the best ways they've found to do it is in coffins. See, Muslims won't defile corpses by moving them around in coffins. They'll just lift the lid and close it. So missionaries have started creating false bottoms in coffins. So they'll crawl inside one, fill up as much available space around them as they can with Bibles, stuff it full of Bibles, have the bottom placed over them and the corpse on top of that, and close, and they smuggle them in that way. Many people have broken them open only to find that the missionary died due to heat 
and suffocation. And I'm sure the smell isn't very pleasant for the ones who survived either. And this is on average a seven to ten day journey, sometimes as long as a month, that they go without food and without a bathroom, all because they know how important it is to get this book into the hands of people who don't have access to it. In all of human history, all of human history, there has been nothing more produced, more controversial, or more shaping of culture than this book. And that statement is especially powerful to me because even if you don't believe, even the people who don't believe what is in this book, that still stands true. There has never been in all of human history something more produced, more controversial, or more shaping of cultures than this book. You cannot find a modern culture today that has not in some way had its history shaped somehow by this book. So it's New Year's resolution time, right? I missed the boat by a week, but that's how the schedule works, so I'm talking about it now. So I want to challenge everyone in this room. I want to challenge us, including myself, to this year choose to make this book a part of our daily lives. And that can look different for each and every one of us. There are tons of apps and resources now that can help you with this, whether you're a beginner just getting started, whether you have been doing this for years and years. There are so many plans you can find, reading plans that will take you through topics, they'll take you through the whole Bible, they'll take you through specific books, whatever. There are plans and resources for any reading level, uh, so they're super easy to find. I don't feel like I need to take a ton of time on that right now. You can listen to it. There's things that will read it to you. Most of this stuff is free, things that will help you study it, whatever. But we need, we need to, as a church, fill our minds with what is in this book. Because we are what we eat. And as true, as true as that statement is with donuts and skinless chicken breasts, it is so much more true with TV shows and partisan news outlets and Facebook and the Bible. This year, this year, will you, along with myself, challenge yourselves to make this book a bigger part of your lives than it was last year? To fill our minds and our hearts with the truth that is in here that so many people have paid with their lives for us to know. Will you, as, as weird as it sounds, will you eat this book this year? Will you pray with me? God, I am so grateful for the men and women who recognized how important this book is to continue doing your work throughout the world. God, I'm thankful for the legacy that they have left us to look to and to draw encouragement from. God, I ask that you forgive me as I consistently don't understand how important this book is to my life. God, I ask that you give us the strength and the tenacity to stay in your word 
all year long. God, to make this a part of our lives every single day. God, we love you so much, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.